You're listening to Hospital Radio Medway. Hello and welcome to Chatterbox. In this episode, Eileen Griffin speaks to Phil Ludeman about being a roadie, showbiz and the drifters. Hello, Hospital Radio Medway or otherwise known as HRM FM. I'm Eileen Griffin and I'm delighted to say that I'm here today with somebody we met a few years ago. Uh, wasn't a regular meetup that we had but when I saw him I said come in and have an interview with me. So I'm delighted to welcome our guest today who is Phil Ludeman. So Phil welcome to Hospital Radio Medway. Oh thank you for having me. Delighted because I know that you've got a lot we can talk about today. So let's start off by saying what would our listeners like to hear about you? Where Are you a Kentish person? Um, I've lived in Kent for the last sort of 35 years. Um, originally, I'm from Somerset, way, um, way down in Somerset. Um, the only reason I went to Somerset because we were evacuated during the war. Um, and that's where my mum was sent. I then came back and I spent about 20 years in Battersea and then came to Kent. So, yeah, I've been here a long time. Oh, and you like Kent, otherwise I you wouldn't Kent. have left here. You're my family here now, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So where did your career start? Were you, um, not like me, were you academic at school? Did you have an interest in going to university or anything like that? Not at all. No. I left school at 15. I remember never getting a prize at school. I didn't really like school very much. Um, And I had a problem because I lived in North London uh, in a very Jewish area. My dad was Jewish and my mother wasn't. So I had to adhere to the Jewish religion, um, but I went to a non-Jewish school. Um, so it was very difficult for me because as soon as I finished school, I had to then go and have Hebrew lessons. Um, and it got to a point where, you know, I lost my friends, I couldn't go play football afterwards and everything. Um, and this went on till I was about 15. At 15, I think, I, I, I left school um, and then I was my own man. So I had about oh, 10, 11 jobs before I really wanted to be in the career which I think I was born to be, which was the entertainment business. Um, And so I said, well, how am I going to get into this business? I've got no musical talent, I've got two left feet, I can't hold a note, but I love music. And I think my inspiration really was Buddy Holly. And, And I think that song, When the Music Died, When Buddy Holly Died, literally, I realized I'm going to have to get into show business somehow. And at the time, I was working in a, a cost, well, it was a, a very fashionable men's uh, store where a lot of the acts and famous people in those days used to get their stage gear from. It was called uh, Cecil G's in Shaftesbury Avenue. And I was the lift boy, and it was a very small lift. It was one of the old-fashioned concertina lifts. And um, it was only a mezzanine floor, so, you know, whoever was in the lift with you was only in there for, you know, a few minutes, if that, a few seconds. Um, and we were told you're going to be a lot of famous people here and um, you can't talk to them, you can't ask for autographs, um, you can just open the door, let them come in and, you know, I, I know you're going to be impressed because you're going to see some, you know, really big stars. And at the time there was the Adam Faith and the Cliff Richards and the Billy Fury, sort of the start of really British rock and roll. And I remember standing in my lift, I called it my cage, looking out of Shaftesbury Avenue 
uh, with a big glass window and I saw this huge American car coming along and I saw people chasing it and it was like the Pied Piper. I was going like, what is going on here? It was Cliff Richards and he was huge at the time. He jumped out of the car and he got into my lift, he got into my cage and I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'd had so many different jobs. I knew if I got fired from this job, I'd find another job because in those days there was such an abundance of work. Uh, for school leavers and um, I remember saying to him um, I'm not really supposed to talk to you um, but I really want to get in the entertainment business but I don't know how and you know can you help me and he said I can't really help you because I but my agency if you call my agent called London Management I remember the name London Management and see if they might have something going for you so I remember my lunch hour I got out and it was the old push-button phone where you put, I think it was tuppence in or something, and I phoned London Management up. And they said, well, at the moment, no, we don't. I mean, they had people like Mike Yarwood, uh, Morecambe and Wise. They were more... That, I wanted to get into the musical side. They had more sort of acts side. But they told me of an agent that was about to start bringing the Tamla Motown acts to the country, and I loved soul music and R&B. Um, give them a phone and just see and I phoned them up and I remember speaking to him his name was Roy Tempest and he said to me have you got any experience and I went yes you know I've been doing it for years um, can you can you you know set equipment up drums up and yeah I can set drums up I had no idea even now um, I probably couldn't put a set of drums together so literally I blagged this job and um, yeah and I, it kept me in employment for 53 years I've been on the road only recently retired so yeah that was a lucky and I've, I've, I've met Cliff Richard afterwards quite a few times because the band I looked after the Drifters were originally uh, with the Shadow it's in, Cliff Richard's band was called the was called the Drifters he'd never realised that there was an American Drifters and he changed the name to the Shadows um, and then we'd done a couple of shows with him uh, uh, and I said, well, we're your original backing band, the Drifters. And I tried to remind him, I don't think he remembered, about the conversation we had in the early 60s and got me into this job. But, yeah, he's a lovely, lovely man. I really And really when you think it. about it, that kind of person, they can meet so many people sure. that they can't remember what they've said to anybody. No, no. But you remember it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it gave me employment, really. For, gave me a great lifestyle, travelled the world met presidents, you know, royalty, you know. Without that one meeting in that lift, um, he could have ignored me and blanked me and said, no, I don't, I've got no idea, you know, I don't know, you shouldn't be talking to me. It's like that saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, yeah. And somebody yeah. will recommend you to somebody else. That's I always say never started. turn down the opportunity because you might just, you might think you've got nothing to offer, but somebody might say, hang on a moment. Yeah. We could use that person for this. Would you yeah. be willing to do it? And if you yeah. say yes, I'll do it. But if I'm not good enough, then, you know, kick me out. True, yeah. I mean, he was... I think a lot of the old artists were... It, it was old school, really. I think they were brought up differently to the artists today. Um, I think they were very lucky. Because I think they actually started um, the business, if you like, you know, prior to... I mean, I, I don't remember... I remember Workers' Playtime. I remember Billy Cotton. I mean, I don't ever remember black. And, I don't ever remember rock and roll until the early '60s. My recollection of the '50s in the UK was very grey. You know, a lot of bomb damage still around. 
And then when the 60s came along, um, you know, and, and Carnaby Street came along and the mods um, and the music scene, the Beatles and everything, it was just, I describe it, as, you know, from, from when I, from whatever age I can remember, the early sort of 50s right through into the 60s. Once we got into the 60s, it was like the yellow brick road. It was like everything was in black and white. And then the 60s came this explosion and it was like the movie it then turns into colour mm. um, and the 60s was the most, for music was the most phenomenal time to be and do you think also because we'd come out of that um, austere times let's call it that because even though the war sure. was over there was, still wasn't money around oh, yeah. there still wasn't food still around poor, there was still rationing and you know you still were disciplined <clears throat> by that Victorian era and attitude weren't you yeah oh, so definitely. suddenly came to the 60s and wow hang on a minute they've all got confidence mm. they're wonderful they can do this they can do that we can't suppress them and suddenly you had to go with the flow well you know what we had we had we, we, we were working and we had this thing called um we had the ability music we had one and sixpence i remember that's what my first 45 cost was one and sixpence and that gave us power because then it gave us the ability to be able to listen to what we wanted to listen to, not be forced to listen to... I mean, I'd done tours with uh, these old artists like Frankie Lane, Johnny Ray. I loved them. But, you know, it wasn't for our era, it, 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 our era rather. Mm. It was for the 40s and the 50s and, and pre-war era. You mm. know, it was the ballad singers, it was the crooners. But then all of a sudden, in the early 60s... Wow, what a musical explosion. It certainly was, because I was a child of the 60s, really. That okay. was my... They were my teen years. Right. Um, all the artists that you're talking about, and that I've read that you've um, managed, helped, taken around, toured with, mm -hmm. they're the ones that influenced me to a degree. I don't say they were uh, the main artists. I mean, I was a little bit of an Elvis Presley fan. Yeah. Um not so much Cliff Richard. I was more Adam Faith. I don't know why. Me but too. I loved Adam Faith. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're the people that you you went out and bought their records. Yeah. And it was wonderful. I mean, doesn't that sound old-fashioned records? Because now you say no track. Yeah. <laughs> it's tracks, a different yeah, world, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But these guys really started all off. Like I said, when, when I first started off, it was like. Um, it was a cottage industry. Mm. I mean, I remember, you know, you take the band, you take the the, the, the singers, um, the, sorry, the equipment, everything in the back of an old comma uh, yeah, minibus or, yeah. or, 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 or what was it, Ford fifteen hundred weight, and you were like travelling minstrels. You literally used to go to a town, get all your equipment out. You had no one to help you do it. You know, you just put it up yourself. But that depended on whether you were going to the Ready Steady Go studios yeah. and you knew the pop group who were going there, yeah. like the Kinks, yeah. and you got in the back of the van under blankets, and smuggled no in. equipment, and you got into the studio. Yeah. And that was because the Beatles were on. Yeah. And we all thought, wow, oh, we'll see the Beatles. Well, there were so many people in there. All we could see were these hair mops going up and down. Yeah. We didn't actually see the Beatles. No. But we were there. I remember taking um, a, a group there, and um, I, I was always a fan, you know. And I remember going there, and I was seeing like this Dusty Springfield. I'm going, I love Dusty. Mm. There she is, you know, nodding at me, saying, "Are you all right?" Um, really, if it wasn't for Dusty, Dusty and Ready Steady Go 
were the originators of bringing Tamla Motown to this country because she saw them in the States. And she, the, the lady that was doing Ready, Steady, Go was called Vicky Wickham. And she said to Vicky, you've got to bring over Motown. The, the, pub, the, the fans have got to see Motown. And it was her that brought Stevie Wonder over, The Temptations, Martha and the Vandellas. It was really Dusty that started that that Motown thing. Because they were on Ready, Steady, Go, and I can remember that. And Stevie Wonder. That's Stevie Wonder, yeah. Yeah, There was a lot of Four Tops. Yeah. You know, I used to take a lot of soul bands, um, you know, and R&B bands to Ready, Steady, Go. And I was a fan. I mean, I'm going like, I might have had sort of, um, who did I take once? Um, I was at Temptations. But then I'm going, I've got the Temptations. Dusty Springfield, you know, I'm, I'm more in awe mm. of being Dusty than bringing the Temptation, which yeah. was a great act. It, it, did, did you find then that the artists that you brought over from America, did they work with the British stars or were they in support of the British stars? Well, they were originally came over as a package. When mm. they first came over, they didn't really do that well. I mean, it was a disaster, to be honest, when the, when the, when the whole package came over. I think... When they went on Ready, Steady, Go, then they were all recognised individually. Mm. So you could bring uh, a Stevie Wonder over and he could do a tour of his own and he could headline a tour of his own. You could bring over the Four Tops and do a tour of their own. Um, but I, I, I think without... And, and also, Ready, Steady, Go brought in things like Atlantic Records, Otis Redding, you know, Sam and Dave. That really started. Top of the Pops never done that. Top of the Pops are only interested if you're in the charts. We can really steady go. We're bringing these acts on, breaking these acts, showing the public. Northern Soul started really ready, steady go. And I think also Kathy McGowan. Kathy McGowan, because she got gorgeous. To, she presented she was very well. I know she might have had a script to follow. I'm, I'm not no, disputing that, but she had the interest in the artists before. Yeah. She did her homework. Yeah. So she presented and them as being good. Exactly. And also I think girls like, wanted to look like her. I remember my girlfriend at the time had to have the yeah. Kathy McGowan haircut. And, and the dance, remember the dancers they yes. have on there? And they the, had a, a couple. I don't know whether they were married or not, but they used to do a different dance every Friday oh, night. I remember them. Everybody used I to copy them. it. Yeah. Well, you know who owns the rights to all the Red Steady Go shows now? No. Uh, Dave Clark. You remember Dave Clark Five? Yes. He's actually bought the rights to all the Red Steady Go shows. Well, I'm blown. Um, yeah, that that was a fantastic era. I really that that. I was never. We used to do Top of the Pops a lot, but Top of the Pops to me was very clinical. You know, it was mm. very. It wasn't like Ready Steady Go, where they broke new artists. I mean, you go along, then the Who would be on you. Go, oh my God. Then the Small Faces would be on you. Go, like mm. this is madness. You know, it's but just, what you didn't see with Top of the Pops that you saw with Ready Steady Go was they only had a few members of the public on a on the Top of the Pops show. And they used to get as many of them as they could round where the camera would get yeah. the people they were herded. dancing. Exactly. They were herded like cattle. And, and the artist, yeah. because I know somebody that used to commute with us, um, she said we didn't get paid very much, but she said we were there with the artists, yeah. and that's what we wanted. But she said there might have only been about half a dozen, maybe a dozen of us there. Yeah. And she said, but when it went out... On television, it looks as though there were hundreds of us there. Yeah. And you said there weren't. I think when you first started, it started off in Manchester, at the top of the pops did, and then it moved down to Shepherd's Bush. Um, yeah, I think it, it was very political, top of the pops. You know, you, you could buy your way onto it, and it mm. wasn't... 
It wasn't as spontaneous as Ready, Steady, Go was. It wasn't the quality of singing yeah. or the band. No. How I loved it. And, you, you know, when you say you've got the Beatles on and then you've got Otis Redding on and then you've got Dusty Springfield on, mm. you know, it's just like, it was just magic. And also, because television was really coming along at the time, you'd, if you had somebody like Dusty Springfield and she brought somebody over from America, mm. then it went out on national television yeah. at prime time. Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you what, we're going to have a little bit of information for everybody and then we'll come back to having a chat, Phil. When you leave hospital, might you have some spare time to really make a difference to patients' lives? Well, if you think the answer's yes, here at Hospital Radio Medway, we'd like to hear from you. On air 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it takes a lot to keep us running and we couldn't do it without dedicated volunteers. And you could be just what we're looking for. So if you're interested in joining our team, just give us a ring on Medway 406 865. Email us via our website or write to us here at the Medway Hospital. Join the team and get involved. You'll be glad you did. The Drifters, they're one of your favourites. Band, would I say? Would that be right? Or well, you spent most time with them? Yeah, I think it's between two acts that I, I really were very, very close with. Dill Shannon, Runaway, um, you know, I used to stay with him in his house in, in, in California. I think The Drifters, because I spent so much time and, and I was there at their latter uh, success. So I started with them in 1960, 1972. Uh, we brought them to the UK because uh, during the 60s they had many, many hits and I think it dried up, their hits dried up in the sort of late 60s when a lot of the English bands went to America and just took the market really and it was all about, you know, the Man From Mans and the Hollies and the Searchers um, and they decided to maybe try England as if they still are remembered at the Drifters in England and so we brought them over and we played a club first date we done was in Liverpool uh, I remember the name of the guy the DJ called Billy Butler and I remember we got the train up because the agent at the time wasn't very good at uh, administration and we couldn't get any hire cars so we had to trudge up all the band and the musicians up on the train to um, to Lime Street Station, got out, and we got to this uh, where the club was, and it was in the old days they used to have like a sliding. Uh, you had to knock on the door and a little slide. Would <laughs> yeah, be. You've yeah, seen that in films. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and I said, oh, um, the Drifters were working here tonight, and I remember this guy in a heavy Liverpudlian act and said, "Well, you can come in if you like, mate, but it, there's no room." And we opened this door, and I've never seen so many people. And of course, the Drifters were loved by 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 the British public mm -hmm. and everywhere we sold we just sold out it was incredible and then we got involved because we didn't have a contract no no record contract and no one really was interested in us even though we'd, we were on Atlantic and had many many hits with Atlantic um, so the agent that we were working for the mo at the time said well you know I'm, I'm very friendly with a record a, a writer called um, Roger Greenaway Cook and Greenaway they're great songwriters um, they'd be thrilled to write and, and get a contract for you. And we went, well, that's great. You know, someone's interested in this again. So we went to the studio, and I remember Roger saying, right, I've got you a Paul McCartney number. And we go, oh. Paul McCartney number. Starting a career with a Paul McCartney, or a comeback with a Paul McCartney number. We were so excited. It was great. It was called Every Night 
which was a hit later on, but not for us. It was a hit for Phoebe Stone. She had a snow. She had a big hit out of it, and we were really despondent. We, we were thinking, right, we're working nightclubs, we're working cabaret clubs. After a hit with Paul McCartney, you know, we're going to be at the Palladium, we're going to be at the Albert Hall, we're going big time. And of course, when it never happened. We were so despondent, we thought, oh, I'd better go on to the club scene again. So Roger called us down to his to his office. He said, well, I do a bit of songwriting. I'd just written You've Got Your Troubles for the Fortunes, and that was a quite a big hit. He said, I'd like to write for it. And we went, yeah, OK, you know, all right. And he said, well, this is the first one. He said, I don't know if you like it. And he wrote, like, Sister and Brother. And we went, Roger, who wrote that? He said, I wrote that. I said, Roger, that's a hit. He said, would you record it? I said, we recorded it in a nano today. Johnny went in and recorded it. And it went to, it It didn't go to number one in the UK. Uh, Charles Aznavour stopped it going to number one with she. But it went to number one in about 28 different territories all around the world. It was absolutely amazing. I, I can't describe what it was like. You know, we were, we were doing, you know, royal shows. We were just all of a sudden elevated from this sort of, you know, club scene to, you know, the world stage. Can you do ten shows a day? You wanted here, there and everywhere. We were doing doubles, we were doing triples, we were constantly, we were on top of the pops, because then they had your morning number in my little red book, um, love games. Um, Roger, Roger was like, he wrote like a conveyor belt. He would sit at a desk, write a record, send it on to the lyricist, and it was just like constantly mm. writing it. And then, of course, he got the success with I Like to Teach the World to Sing, which was the Coke jingle and also, you know, the new Seekers yeah. recorded it. So, yeah, and it was... Um, it was amazing and he just I think by Roger writing that first hit in 90 kept us in a career going right through to well Johnny passed away sadly in 1998 we still carried on till about 2012 um, and it was on the strength of those hits that Roger wrote for us and and Les Reed and Tony McCauley great English songwriters Mm. understated you know not appreciated it but then thinking about the Drifters, particularly as we're talking about them there, um, they had a lot of hits to their credit. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at the 60s, Save the Last Dance for Me, Under the Bullport, mm. Come On Over to My Place. People still Magic sing them. Magic moment. Yeah. I mean, Benny King was our lead singer um, when Johnny was in the National Service in America. And I was really, really privileged to put together a tour just before Johnny died of Benny King and Johnny Moore. Now, they'd never met before, even though they'd been, you know, um, credited for selling millions of records as the Drifters' lead singers. And and never met before, and I managed to get them together to do a tour in the UK. It was fabulous. And I can't tell you, every night I was just like... I didn't think this would ever happen. You know, so Benny would do all the hits he was on, Magic Moments, Say the Last Dance for Me, There Goes My Baby, and then Johnny would come back and do all the hits that he was on. And it was just magical. You were the sort of Michael Parkinson of the day because if you remember, there was Stefan Grappelli... And I'm trying to think of the other... Yehudi Menuhin. Yeah, yeah. He put the two of them together and you've done exactly the same thing with your artists. Yeah, but you think these two never met, even though they'd been on the same record label, they were both Mm. lead singers for the same group and Mm. they'd never met. Um, So, yeah, that that was probably one of the highlights. Mm. 
The chaplaincy team at Medway Maritime Hospital provides spiritual support for patients, relatives and members of staff. The hospital chaplains are available for you whether you're a religious believer or not. A team of trained volunteers assist the chaplains. The chaplaincy team will be pleased to visit you if you feel the need to talk to someone during your stay in hospital. If you would like to see a chaplain or chaplaincy visitor, please contact our chapel office on extension 3816 or from outside the hospital on Medway 833-816. An answer phone is provided in case the chaplains are not immediately available. You may ask a member of staff to contact them for you. We have chaplains and visitors from the Church of England, Roman Catholic and Free Church traditions. We will be pleased to arrange visits by representatives of Sikh, Muslim, Hindu or other faiths on request. On Sundays, there is a service in the chapel from 7.30 until 8pm, followed by Holy Communion for those who wish. Please ask for the chaplains to be notified in plenty of time if you would like someone to come to push you in a wheelchair to the chapel for this service. There is a prayer box in the chapel for your prayer requests. The chapel is opposite Wakeley Ward on Level 2 Blue Zone. This announcement is brought to you by Hospital Radio Medway for the chaplaincy team. Text 07520 Well, I'm sitting here, Phil, thinking to myself, I'm glad last night I didn't spend a lot of time thinking of questions because <laughs> we wouldn't have, we haven't gone across anything that I've thought of, but we're having conversations in another direction that I haven't oh, thought of. Well, yeah. I'll keep you talking for hours, so don't, don't worry about me. So when you did you go to America and do a lot of touring there with British artists? Yeah, so what, what I'd done was in 1966, um, I decided on a... I was having a few emotional problems with girlfriends and I was living with my nan at the time. And I'd done a tour with uh, a singer called Lee Dorsey. He was quite, it was a big singer of the 60s. And um, he asked me whether I'd like to be his tour manager in America. Um, and I said I'd love to, so I, I went over and I lived and worked with him in New Orleans. Um, and then I had such varied jobs because, you know, it was it was in the deep south, and it wasn't the place to be a white chauffeur to a black artist. I mean, I always used to have to sit in the back while Lee drove. It it could never be the other way round. We got stopped many times when, you know, I was driving the car. We had a white Cadillac and Lee would be in the back. We'd be going to a gig. I'd be driving and we were so often pulled over uh, by police and, uh, you know, told there's no way that, you know, I should be driving a N-word around. Um, How dare me? And what I used to, I then got a bit of bravado up and I, I then said, well, I work for the press in England and they've actually sent me over here to get the story on what this racial problem is in, in the South and it's a great opportunity by you stopping me because I've seen it at first hand. And um, I remember when, when the policeman said, oh, you know, it's just a friendly name, we call them now, it's just an affection name. I'll, I'll, I'll drive you through the state line, which which he did. And when we got through there, Lee said to me, don't you ever, ever do that again. Don't you ever back, back you know, chat a policeman over here. Just call them sir. Just do as they tell. You go, I'll drive, you get in the back. It's because, a learning curve. Because you know why? Mm. He said because they would get a, a bulldozer, they would dig a hole, they'd bury the Cadillac with you in it, 
and no one would know about it. Good gracious. So that gave me a, a real insight into... Um, so I came away from that. I think that sort of mm, made me a bit nervous. And then I got a job... Um, because, of course, you weren't used to it in this country. Oh, no. Totally. Yeah. Totally not. No, mm-hmm. no. It was just a different world to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I went out with uh, one of the young ladies down there, um, and I never realised. To me, she was as light as you and me. But she had freckles, and that meant nothing to me. But she was a very attractive lady. And I remember down in, in, in Camp Street in, in, in New Orleans walking along, and this guy came along and called me all sorts of names and how dare I go out. And I said to the girl, I, I, what, what's different? She said, well, I'm, I'm a Creole. I'm actually classed as black down here, even though I'm white. And the only, get it, and the only thing that gives it away is my freckles. Oh, what a shame. Yeah, so that was just a nice... So I said to myself, well, I love New Orleans, I love the South, but, you know, being, you know, someone not used to that sort of behaviour. So then I got a job for a record company, a very strange job, and what I had to do was, because it was quite corrupt, you couldn't bribe a DJ to pay your records. You couldn't do that because that was corrupt. But what you could do is you could find out when that DJ's wife's birthday was and uh-huh. you could give her a gift. And it was called payola. It, it, you know, if any of your listeners... different legal way of doing things. Right. Mm. But totally immoral. Actually illegal as well. Um, so that was my job. And I basically um, went round to these DJs, had all these envelopes, I had a nice uh, Ford Mustang that was my company car, and I'd drive all down the south, places I'd never heard of in my life, you know, all the Alabamas, um, you know, where they're real sort of rednecks. And uh, I used to just find out the D, go to the DJ and just say, you know, happy birthday to your wife, you know, Sorry, you know, I met her, but and they go on. And I broke a record that went to number one, and it was so successful that we couldn't press it quick enough in America. So it was bootlegged. So what we were doing was illegal, <laughs> and yet they were doing illegal. <laughs> they they caught a bit. It's a record called Tell It Like It Is by Aaron Neville. I don't know if you've got it on your playlist. Oh, we'll have a look. But it would be interesting to play. But I broke that as by me going around and. <laughs> Bribing, yeah, that's the word. Bribing DJs by giving gifts. Mm. How, how long were you in America for? Uh, of about years? fourteen, fifteen months. Oh. And um, what brought you back again? Um, I missed England. Yeah, I did. I missed England, and then when I came back, I then signed up with a new agency that had some amazing, amazing artists, and uh, and that brought me back on the road, and that really brought me back to the Drifters because this agency I came back to work for represented the Drifters so it was like a full circle really yeah I, I know a lot of people like the Michael Caines <coughs> and who else was uh, oh, somebody else they'd gone out to America but he said you know you can't cope with it there because he said on a Sunday morning you go out to the news agents and you buy all the English newspapers yeah that's, that's so true yeah because you're there for work but I was pining for news from England, you know. Mm. And you couldn't really go down, you know, um, I don't know, Bourbon Street in New Orleans and say, have you got a news of the world? <laughs> no. you know, it wouldn't happen. You know, no. they go, what are I you talking about? Page. Yeah, 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 it never happened. Um, but as we were talking before, it was very interesting because when I started in the 60s, um, agencies in this country, because uh, uh, the Musicians Union were very, very powerful, 
And what they would do is they would insist if an American, uh, if an English act went out to America, you would have to exchange those days that they went out there with an American musician to bring them back to England. So in other words, it was an exchange. So if, I don't know, say Man From Man went over there or the Hollies went over there, there was five members in the Hollies, then you'd have to bring five musicians from the States back to England. It was called exchange, man day exchange. Um, and the ATI I worked for at the time found it very difficult to, um, you know, work this out. So what he said was, well, what we're going to do is, instead of bringing over five musicians, we will let them bring an American app. We will let them bring one key member. So it would either be an, an his MD, it would be a keyboard player, a drummer, whatever they wanted to bring as a musician. And we would supply English musicians, which... You know, the MU love that, the Musicians Union, because, you know, they're getting a double bubble. They're getting their, their artists going around, and they're also getting work for English artists. And one of the acts we had was a bluesology. And I remember thinking to myself, they were the most unlikely-looking backing group, but they backed some big acts for us, Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, Doris Troy, uh, the Ink Spots, believe it or not, you know, the, which were pre-war, the Ink Spots, um, who are Major Lance and Billy Stewart. So they backed quite a lot of English acts for us. And I always remember this keyboard player, he, used to, he, he was dumpy, uh, he used to wear a beret, he used to have like a striped um, T-shirt, it looked like a, a matlow, he looked like a French onion seller, to be honest with you. And he'd always say, oh, can we, do a, can we do a number before the act goes on? I'd say, no, we haven't got time. And he'd go, oh, just before, no, no, we haven't got time. His name was Reg. And I'd go, Reg, we haven't got time. And then he'd go to another venue. Can I do a number for... No, we... You know, it went on and on and on. In the end, I think we were somewhere at a club and he said, can we do a number? I said, just do a number. Get out of your system, you know, and be done with it. Anyway, done this, this number and it was all right. It wasn't very sort of... Uh, nothing to, you know, remember, be remembered by. Um, and then he left and he changed his name, Reg did, to Elton John. So <laughs> I, I don't know what happened to him. Is he still around? Um... That- <laughs> Oh, oh! Yeah. I think so. so I think, so, I think so. Yeah. yeah. But saying that, jokingly, we we met up with him. I've met up with him quite a few times since, and it's amazing because it, it it was a role reversal. We we went to a book signing when um, Tim Rice and Paul Gambaccini done the Guinness Book of Records. And the artists that uh, the promoter I worked for had lots of sort of sixties acts uh, on uh, on the, on his rotor, and we got them all invited to this book signing so me thinking well, I'm going to get autographs I got the autographs of everybody and it ranged from people like I don't know Johnny Ray to uh, Errol Brown uh, to Cliff Richard they're, they're all, all sort of years of, of musicians there and of course one of them was Elton John and I remember being in the green room and I was having a drink and he came in and I went hello he said uh, hello Phil are you still working I went yeah so I said, Rick, could you do me a favour? I said, can we do a number before you go on? And he goes, yeah, I sort you something out. And he got us a, he got us a gig at, um, at Waffle Football Club when he was mm. manager, yeah. Because he's actually very good at looking after artists. If they're oh, yeah. not well or anything like that, he's in there with a the doctor. Go to this doctor and do this and do that. And he's also great at promoting artists. Um, Kate Bush, he's always yeah. promoting her. Yeah. So he's... And he's interested in new artists as well. He doesn't go back. That's, that's <clears throat> no, he moves he, forward. He always moves forward. I mean, but he doesn't forget the people he's worked no, with. No, they were so amazing. Yeah, we had lots of sort of 
backing bands that went on to bigger things. Um, the Foundations were one of our backing bands. Uh, AWB, the Average White Band, that was one of our backing bands. We were called the Senate then. Mm. So a lot of them have gone on to a lot of success and they literally were put together to, to back these American artists. The Royal Voluntary Service in Chatham is a welcoming place for all ages to meet, eat and join in a variety of activities. The centre is open Mondays to Fridays from 10am to 3.30pm. Let me list some of the things you will find on offer. On Mondays you can knit and natter, join in the diamond mosaic craft sessions, there's bingo and you can have foot care. Moving on to Tuesdays, it's Tai Chi, which is great for posture, stress, balance and general mobility. The book club takes place on the last Tuesday of the month. The Fix IT Clinic provides assistance in the use of smartphones, tablets and websites and there is an all-day genealogy group. Wednesdays are for the Art Club and Genealogy. On Thursdays, the Crochet Club hook up and you can stay active with a Move It or Lose It session to help you to stay active and enjoy a happier and healthier life. Available every other week is a free advice service from the Citizens Advice Bureau. Fridays are the days for the Fix IT Clinic and the Foot Care Service. Throughout the week, the cafe is open, providing drinks, sandwiches, light snacks, main meals and desserts. Additionally, you can have the opportunity to take advantage of the takeaway service. Do you have any skills that you could teach that others may learn from? The centre is certainly keen to hear from you. Call the dedicated volunteers for a chat on 01634 That's 01634 Well, Phil... We've still got more to talk about, haven't we? We have. I think we're going to turn this into a podcast when we've finished as well. We might even have to have a part two. Can you come back and do an hour in another whatever's time? Part three, four, five. (laughs) (laughs) So when you came back here and the music scene started to change, did you ever feel that you wanted to move on with the new artists or did you feel that they were not the type of people you wanted to roadie around or anything like that? I know what you mean. Yeah, I did do a couple of um, uh, tours, I think, with Spando Ballet, which which was quite out of my era, but, um, and there was one other. No, because I was so steeped in that sort of soul, and and I found that old school artists were easier to look after. Um, They weren't so demanding as these new groups. Um, they had experience that these other bands didn't have. Um, I was out of my comfort zone with them, to be honest. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll stay in what I know. You know, the eras I know, the eras I'm comfortable with. Do you think it was the management of these people that that took them in that direction? And I think so. Gave them big egos and I things think like right. that? I think you're right, yeah. And I think lots of times the management was heavier than the artists. I mean, they they were the ones making the money. Mm. They were the ones, you know. I mean, there's some notorious managers, you know, during that era who were ruthless. A lot of those artists, you know, ended up, you know, paying for everything and ended up with no monies, Mm. no royalties. They get everything was taken away. And I always used to think that, you know, their management teams used to... It was the same old routine. They'd get them on breakfast television at 6 o'clock in the morning. They'd probably only got to bed at 5 o'clock in the morning. That kind of thing. And you used to think, are the management pushing them a bit too far? Because you can see it now with, like, Little Mix. They got to a point where they were burnt out. And one of the girls, to save her own sanity, said, I've got to get out. Yeah, I I think, you know, record companies put you under a lot of 
you know, because they want their investment back. Yeah, so, and know, they've got investors they've got to yeah, return. So, yeah. I mean, it's a combination, you know. It, you know, you've got a management, you've got, you know, you've got to pay for so many people. You know, you've got to pay for your your publicity. Everything's down to you. Mm. And because you think you're earning, you know, these sort of vast sums every night and everything, you're not really because time, you know, this is deducted, that's deducted. You know, I mean, people like uh, Small Faces ended up with no money at all. Mm. You know, and, and the, the way really now is to write your stuff because then... You keep it in-house. The Ed Sheerans of this yeah, world that, and that, George Ezra. That's the way to do it. Oh. That is the way to do it. Because I remember Cathy... Um, da- uh, no, what's her name? Cathy... Oh, gosh, her name's gone out of my head. Mm-hmm. Married to Paul Daniels. Oh, I know who you Debbie, mean. Debbie, Debbie McGee. Debbie McGee, yeah. Sorry, why, why would I forget that? Yeah. Um, she was saying on a television programme that the best thing you can do is put a third of your salary into an account and say... That'll be for tax, and keep the two thirds for yourself, yeah, because that, you that, said you get to the point where you don't know what what people are doing with your money, no. and you need to be able to pay that tax bill at the end of the year. Yeah, you know, mm. and I, I saw this story about Sting, and um, how his accountant had embezzled him out of millions and millions of pounds, and yet Sting didn't even know. No, because you hand it all over to people that you think that you can trust. I mean, don't hand over your accounts to me because I'll bankrupt the world in a split (laughs) second. But having said that, maths wasn't my forte at school. No, no. But I'm very, very careful. I make sure, and especially if it's somebody else's money and I owe it, I'm so over-the-top careful. And my my neighbours and friends laughed at me because if I owed somebody 50 pence, I'd put it by the kitchen door so that when I went out, I'd pick it up. And if I didn't pick it up and forgot it, that 50 pence stayed there because I had to make sure I paid it. It wasn't yeah. mine. No, it didn't go I back know. in my purse. I know. So I can understand those people. I would have to have, although I wouldn't understand it, an input and say, look, I've got to keep an eye on what's happening in my life. Right. Don't run it for me. You're absolutely right. So what I'd done was, um, I mean, I, I'd said to myself, right, the one person I know that is going to look after my income and my group's income is my wife, okay? So I then, you, she, she became our administrator. So, every, I mean, she's trying to get me to do online banking now. I, I, I can't be bothered with it. So, you know, she does it all. So we, we I mean, we used to do really well at merchandising. Now, you know, you, you have to keep books on merchandising because if you don't, you know, it, it runs away, doesn't it? It runs away because mm. you're getting, you know, you're, you've, you've finished a gig, you've got all these programmes, you know, people have just got £5, £10 notes, just, you know, take it, take it, take mm. it. Um, and I don't have that sort of brain. I, I can't multitask. I, no, I'm the I same. Mm. So, yeah, so she came along. So, you know, we, you know, we, 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 we paid what we owed mm. and we kept, well, we had one, two, seven... About 14 of us employment with sound, lights, mm. uh, musicians. Um, I know when the drifters were at Chatham and we came down there to help out, I think I was looking after your daughter who would have been, I forget what age she would have been at the time, about six which, or seven? Yeah, she was born in 1998. Because so. I remember your wife, you said your wife had gone up to London to see Kylie Minogue. That's There's right. There's nobody to look after your daughter. 
And you were, everybody was asking you questions. I said, look, Phil, just go, leave her with me. Yeah. If ever you, if you want to come find out where she is, she's here with me. Don't worry, I won't take oh, my eye off her. Yeah. And then there were people that were asking the drifters for their autographs and they came down to me and said, um, do we have to pay for it? And I'd already cleared it with you. And I said, no, there's no fee for it. And they said, oh, would you take a donation for hospital radio then? Oh, thank yeah. you very much. Yes, yeah. we will. The guys were great. Every show, wherever we were, I'd always set a table up after the show. Do you remember? Yes. And yeah. I'd bring the programmes out, and uh, but they they would sign anything. They didn't have to buy a programme. Mm. And I got my daughter, uh, I suppose she was only about eight at the time. I used to get her on stage, but the guys used to bring her on stage. And I called her the only official Driftette. <laughs> oh, lovely. And I don't know if you remember, but when we used to do hugging and a kissing in the back row of the movies, there was like they a routine. That was a hugging <laughs> and a kissing in the back row of movies. And she learned that off by Pat. And, of course, when we used to do autographs, she would come out. She's eight years old and signing autographs yeah. with the guys. But. Yeah. Uh, because I remember they were very good. I mean, no matter some people can be a bit gushing with them, you know, because yeah. oh, it's a, a, a TV star or a singer yeah, on stage yeah. and that. But they were very good with them, and they just casually walked over and had photographs taken, oh, whether it was the whole lot of them or just as individuals. Yeah, well, we loved our audience. Oh. Well, we were grateful to our audience, yeah. you know. Yeah, why this is would what a lot of people forget. That, you know, yeah. and you've got to sell it and you think people have either, you know, saved money to come to see you or changed their, you know, their day so they can come and... Yeah, I mean, we, we, we were humble, honestly. I, I, I had no time for any of these artists that would, mm. you know, sort of, you know, I don't do autographs or I don't do that, this grandeur. I think this is what uh, Ringo Starr said. Don't ask me for my autograph. I don't do autographs. And I thought, well, you're That's kidding yourself. You know. I can oh. remember somebody um, I was with and they saw somebody famous and they went over and said, um, oh, you know, she said to me, do you think he would sign my autograph? I said, well, if you ask politely, I'm sure he will. And she went over and she said, oh, excuse me, could I please have your autograph? And he said, oh, my dear girl, he said, I don't sign for anybody. No. So this other girl turned around and she says, God, she says you're up your own. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Talk, talking of autographs, did did I tell the story when we went to the White House? Um, what it was was we in it. I can't think what year it was. Now it must have been about nineteen. I was living in Hartley. Yeah. So it was about. Um, it must have been the mid eighties. And we got this invitation, I got this phone call uh, to say, uh, it's the White House calling uh, on behalf of President uh, <laughs> Clinton. I went, and where I lived at the time in, in, in Kent, uh, we had house names, we didn't have numbers. And my next door neighbour was called the White House and my house was called the Chase. And I was really friendly with the guys. It was a, it was a used car salesman, he was a bit of a rogue, but he was a sort of the earth. So when this voice came and said, uh, calling from Washington, uh, the White House, and I thought automatically he's got someone next door to get on the phone and, and wind, wind up. up. <laughs> so I'm going through it. Yeah, of course it's the White House. Yeah, Jason, come on now, what are you talking about? No, this is uh, uh, um, uh, Anne Stuck. I'm the president secretary of President Clinton. I'm calling on behalf of the president, uh, reference the drifters. And I thought, OK, maybe. Maybe it might. I said, OK, what's the story? She said, well, in um, when President Clinton gra graduated from Georgetown University 25 years prior was the year President 
Kennedy was assassinated, the day that President Kennedy was assassinated. And what they'd done was they booked the drifters, Chuck Berry and the spinners, to appear at this graduation party. 25 years later, now he's the president, and he's going to relive this. So what he'd done was he got in touch with me. That's how the White House came. Um, Chuck Berry and spinners, and we flew over to Washington, and we'd done this special graduation party 25 years later so before we went to actually perform he's sort of you know his uh, administrator came and said well you know would you like to meet the president before and 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 before you go on stage because he won't have time he's got another commitment afterwards he said love to so we're we're all in the oval office at the famous oval office with the with the desk and the carpet that some of you patients might remember that story about the carpet but anyway um we were standing at the White House. We were staying at the Holiday Inn, and I remember at the side of my bed there was like a little pad and a pen. And I thought, so do you know, what? I'm going to ask for his autograph. So when we met up the next day, I said to the guys, "I'm going to ask for his autograph," and they came, "Phil, you can't! How embarrassing! Don't do it when we're there. I don't, you know, you. This is a present. You don't get a bit of paper out and ask for his autograph." And I came, "Well, what am I going to lose? You know, we." probably not going to come back here again and he can only say no so everybody went out and you know was introduced to him and it finally got to me I was the last because I was probably the only Brit and then we got into the conversation about being English and he was telling me that he actually spent two years over here and we were really chatting and everything and he went oh well, thank you you know for, for bringing the guys over it's really appreciated I'm really looking forward to it and I'm with Hillary and basically asked for his autograph and on this touchy bit of paper, and he goes, oh, Philip, we can do better than that. He went to the desk, opened the drawer, got this fabulous card which says President of the United States of America, and he autographed it for me. And I went to the guys, there we go. They all then came. It. Can we have an autograph? Can we? They, yeah. they got all, that poor president got autographs for their wives, their milkman, their butcher. That's <laughs> wonderful. But no, I still got it, and it's up on my wall with a picture of me and the prez and with my, my autograph. We're mates. My, my, my mate, be, my, my mate Bill. He's my bestie. Bill well, is. Phil, thanks so much for coming in. It's been really it's interesting talking to you. I thought we could go on for another two, three, or four hours, but time sometimes sure, catches up. I understand. So, thank you for coming into Hospital Radio Medway FM, and you can, of course, listen to us on eighty-seven point nine FM while you're in the hospital. Can I give my love to all your patients? You can do. And also thank the staff. I'm, I'm, I'm here as well. I get treated here and I've had fabulous treatment from them so yeah thank you if you'd like to hear more episodes in this series of podcasts or indeed see our other podcasts search for our podcast website in your browser hospitalradiomedway.captivate.fm there's four easy ways to listen to hrm fm Go to our website at hospitalradiomedway.co.uk and click to listen now. Go to NHS Wi-Fi on your device and find us there. Say, play Hospital Radio Medway to your smart speaker or switch your radio on and go to 87.9 FM, the radio station for the Medway Maritime Hospital. This is HRM FM.